Chris Cottrell with Winston and Strawn. Thank you very much for joining us here today in the Crude Life. Following on the story, Force Majeure had you on a little over a month ago, just pontificating, if you will, talking about the reality of a Force Majeure being implemented for some contracts throughout the oil and gas industry. And back then, I remember you kind of mentioned that it'd probably be a good idea. I think you even called out the Texas Railroad Commission, and I don't, I don't mean called out in a controversial way, but said that some of the organizations, and since you're out of Houston, that was a natural fit, was to start defining this stuff early because it'll help later on. And we're going off of the Oklahoma governor and his recent, uh, I guess, declaration of a force majeure. So uh, Chris Cottrell, how are you doing today? Hey, doing great, Jason. Thank you so much for having me on. So let's start off with that, if you wouldn't mind, that letter from the governor to uh, President Donald Trump about uh, basically defining or just being aware of the force majeure clause in a contract. So have you taken a look at that letter? I have taken a look at the letter that Governor Stitt uh, wrote to President Trump. And so you know, a lot of people are asking how that's going to help the industry. So I want to kind of give some background that, you know, a lot of these force majeure provisions require a, a governmental declaration or a governmental order declaring a force majeure, or at least that's one thing that would qualify as a force majeure. And so back when we were talking a few weeks ago, you know, I had said, Maybe it would be a great opportunity for the Railroad Commission to make a declaration that this, in fact, is a force majeure to the extent that people have that language in their contract. And it looks like the governor of Oklahoma has, in fact, uh, heeded our calls for that, and he has actually requested a national declaration of a force majeure, which would cover you know, all the basins of the United States. So it's a very exciting turn of events, and, and hope, ho- we're hoping that's something that actually happens that will help uh, the, the, the producers and actually all street, everybody involved in the entire stream of production from midstream to, to marketing, gathering, storage, uh, and allow them to, to put a pause on, on their ob- contractual obligations during this, this critical time. Did want to ask you one question too, and and feel free to bypass this if you want, because I, I don't want to get you involved in controversy. But I did see on a social media post, I think it was on your LinkedIn page or someone else's about this particular topic involving mineral owners, and I kind of racked my brain a little bit, and I didn't really see how it would hurt mineral owners. I get how pausing might, but overall, I didn't see the bigger picture on how it would have an overall negative impact on it. Are, are you aware of that side of the the coin? of? Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, basically the landowners are the the other side, of, the other party in the lease, right, where this, they're, they're, they have these obligations that they're requiring the operator or the producer to do in order to generate revenue and generate a royalty income to them. So obviously pausing any kind of work or production on their lease would impact their the monthly checks that they receive. So that is that is a downside. Uh, you know, my response to that is that 
you know, this is a finite, limited resource, and do you really want to deplete your your reservoir uh, in, in a historically low price environment? You know, I'd, I'd argue that that, it, that is not the best use of the resources that we have, and that we should wait to produce them into a market that's that's healthier and has higher pricing. And I, I'm just going to add a, one more thing before we continue on with the interview here is uh, I, I wanted just to bring that up because I, I think we're in the territory past where everybody gets a trophy and you know w- we understand that all decisions are not going to be 100% beneficial to everybody but like I was saying I, I took a step back and tried to look at the net positive versus the net negative gain on this and I think just being able to do what the governor of Oklahoma was trying to do I think has an overall positive gain, not only for the industry, but, but for the mineral owners. And um, anyway, I just, I, I wanted to make that clear point, I guess, that we're, we're in some areas right now, overall as an economy, as a society where, you know, each decision does have real, real effects on both sides. And so we're in some real leadership category here. And I did want to transition that into, and you can comment on that as well, if you'd like, but I, I did want to mention it like that because we're entering into the Railroad Commission of Texas now. And, you know, some of the hearings that have happened there, um, you know, there used to be a time where the Railroad Commission was basically as big as OPEC in terms of power, you know, back in the 70s and pre-70s times. So it, it's interesting when you start looking at when the Railroad Commission gets in the news and everything. And have you been following some of those hearings? And, and have you uh, got kind of an opinion on what's going on there with the Railroad Commission of Texas? Absolutely. Yeah, it's really interesting what's happening right now. And, you know, I, I, I hesitate to give my personal opinion on that. But basically what's happening is that you have some uh, producers, mainly led, you know, coalition led by Pioneer and Parsley here in, in the Midland and, you know, the Permian Basin, Delaware and Midland uh, uh, plays. And they, they've gone to the Railroad Commission and asked them to to adopt special proration rules that limit pro- the, the amount of production you can have on lease on leases statewide. And, you know, I, I think that they're, they're trying to limit the amount of supply that's in the market in, in an attempt to stabilize the price. That's really the big picture of what's happening right now. And, you know, just like you said with your earlier statements, there's no perfect response to this. There's no one answer that's going to solve all the issues. And there are implications all up and down the stream and it, for, for a number of different people. So it, it's just a tough situation and, um, you know, and no one really knows if that's really going to solve the issue. Obviously, you know, the, the, the critics of that position are going to say that, you know, the free market's working, that, um, that we don't require any governmental intervention, that the price oil is actually forcing people to lay down rigs and stop production and, and actually shut in uneconomic wells. And so it's already working. Why do we need the railroad commission to step in? So that that's that would be, I think, the main critical response to that that attempt. 
I think it's really interesting, to be honest, uh, to be a part of this particular time in our industry. And it's it's really interesting kind of what you've laid out here in my mind because, you know, you mentioned Parsley and uh, the CEO, Matt Gallagher, is scheduled to be on this program next month after their quarterly meetings. And one of the things that I'm going to ask them is just what's going on in the industry. Because really, if you take a look at the core the, the, the core of this, we're talking about oil, right? And you and I have talked before about how oil is a commodity. And, you know, when you look at kind of the new shale revolution, they've, they've talked about a lot of the guesswork is out of it. So it's, you know, some people have argued that it's really like agriculture now. It's all a price point game. Depending on what the price of corn is and wheat, that's when you plant. And same thing with oil prices. When it hits a certain amount, you can go drill in this area of the shale play and otherwise you can't. So when we talk about getting into more of, you know, the government controls and, and that sort of thing, the word ag at 2.0 comes up and the, uh, the comparison to ag. And then when you look at what, you know, like Mike Summers from API, when they first talked about the initial bailouts, I mean, before the sentence was even done, Mike Summers was out saying, absolutely not, no, this and that. So on one side, you've got, you know, somebody like Mike Summers from API saying, no bailouts. And then on the other side, you know, you've got this new generation saying, well, maybe we should take a look at the Texas Railroad Commission. And again, this isn't to start a fight. This isn't to create controversy. To This is where we're at in a month. And it's interesting that the industry could go a couple different ways here, Chris. I mean, because if you take a look at what Norway and Mexico did during the last downturn, they opened it up. They opened it up to the free market and a bunch of uh, foreign investors came in. And then you take a look at some other markets and, and they went more of the nationalized, quasi-subsidized control method of it. So I think we're really at an interesting teetering point as an industry. Um, I don't know if you want to comment on that, but I do think that's kind of the core issue is oil as a commodity. How about you? Yeah, I, I fully agree. I mean, look, the thing that kind of excite, excited me a little bit about, so so Matt Gallagher, the CEO of Parsley, was on Jim Cramer on CNBC recently, kind of laying out why he thinks the Railroad Commission needs to have proration, uh, you know, advanced proration rules uh, promulgated. And I noticed that in the background, he had he had a book on his shelf, and the name of the book is called The Quest, Energy Security and the Remaking of the Modern World. And if your listeners haven't read the book, I highly recommend the book. It's a fascinating book about the history of the oil, the oil industry and its connection to global political and economic change. And, you know, it, it's it, the oil industry has, has historically been tied to a lot of political and economic implications. And, you know, I think we've settled into this, this situation where we're, we we uh, the market's telling us that we're that that oil's so abundant that it should be free almost free right and that we have nothing to worry about that we can get it wherever we want and i really question whether that's true or not and you've got a lot of people that that uh think the the free market should you know uh dictate and if that means that you go out of business then that's okay and i think I, you know my 
my only word of caution to that that type of thinking is to remind people that before we had the American Renaissance, you know, we were very heavily re- reliant on OPEC production, you know, 35 to 40 percent, and they really controlled a huge market share of the oil that 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 we uh, that we used in this country. And you know, I think we've got that we've gotten our demand on the on them down to you know approximately 18 percent over the last six years or so. So so more than ha- half drop in our our demand. And so I think you know w- when you take a step back and go, what's really at stake if we let the industry die, right, or or get smaller, and if we lose all this talent. All these folks that are in the field. If we if we lose all this talent that we have in the industry, what happens? And I think I, I'd say that what, what we're giving up is is our ability to really be at the forefront of an an industry that we rely on every single day, and we could potentially be turning over um, a lot of our financial and economic stability over to a region that I, I question whether or not they have the same stability that, that, that we have and they're going to be able to supply the, the, the oil that we need in the future. Um, you know, and I, and I saw some people say, well, you know, Canada, we're, we're almost 50% importing from them. You know, okay, but do you think they're going to be here when this is all over if they don't get bailed out? You know, is this a situation where when this is all over and all of our industries are wiped out, including the Canadian ones, are we at 60 to 7% relying on OPEC? And what does that look like? Very interesting times we're in. And I like to always reiterate, in my mind, I think we're in a in, in a time where everything's on the table and we've got to figure out ways to logically take things off the table because the world's flipped upside down right now. And I, I'm laughing at your email that you sent me here about the flaming hot Cheeto story, asking me if I've seen it. I have not seen it, so I'm not sure how to ask you about the with the industry. But I do want to ask you about the flaming hot Cheeto story. So first off, what is the flaming hot Cheeto story? Oh, that's a that's a great story, and so I I wanted to share that with your listeners just just quickly. Um, you know, I, I think we're in a very t- tough si- situation, like you said, and, you know, for the CEOs that are listening to this, the leaders uh, of certain companies that are listening to this, I think that a lot of people, that their first instinct is to is to lay off or to, to fire people, and, of course, that that's often a necessary thing if you're going to survive in this environment, so I'm not trying to be critical of that, but I did want to tell you your listeners a story about uh, the Flaming Hot Cheetos. So during the the 80s, Frito-Lay was having a very tough time, and their CEO um, delivered a a video tape to his various factories, uh, basically telling them that, you know, that they should have an ownership mentality. They should think like owners uh, on Frito-Lay. And that they were they were in need of something innovative, 
and something that's game changing and that they should think how can they help drop costs? How could they, what product line could we deploy that's going to turn us around and make us more competitive? And out of everybody that listened to that video, there was a gentleman in the back of the room uh, that watched the video and it, and it hit him so powerfully that he started to think, uh, you know, I should be thinking like an owner. What, what would I do if I owned Frito-Lay? And so he asked the sales guy if he could tag along. I'm sure the sales guy thought he was crazy. Tag along uh, to, to just see what it's like, it, to, to stock the shelves and to see what the products look like, what does that process look like. And so he spent the weekends going with the sales guy uh, at the factory, and he, he started to notice what, what uh, you know, where they, they sat on the shelf, how much shelf space they were provided, um, where they were located, what, what the other competitors had on the shelves, you know, were they flavored, were they seasoned, were they not, you know, why were people buying other stuff? And so he realized that the stuff that was really selling was seasoned, you know, seasoned chips. And he thought that that would be a solution that Frito-Lay could, could roll out. And so he went back home to his wife and, and told her this whole idea that he, he thinks that they could make a, a hot or spicy salsa type chip and, and roll that out as a, a new product line. So she spent you know, a lot of time in the kitchen and, and they finally came up with a product that they thought would be uh, a game changer. And so he, 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 he told a story on a podcast recently and I think they're actually making a movie about it because it's such a fascinating, fascinating uh, story. And the guy's name is Richard Mont- Montanez, if, if any of your listeners want to look him up. But he basically pulled out the phone book and looked up the CEO's name uh, for Frito-Lay and gave him a call. And the secretary picks up the, the phone and she said, well, who... What division are you in? Are you in North America? Are you in South America? And he says, No, I'm in, I'm in North America. And he's like, Well, he's like, I'm a, I'm at a plant. He's like, Well, what 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 plant division? Are you in the California division, Texas division? Are you the head of that? He's like, No, I'm not the head of that. I, I work at this specific plant in California. And he said, Well, are you the plant the head of the plant? Are you the the manager of the plant? He's like, He said, No, and he was he was the janitor at the plant. And uh, she put him on hold and patched him through directly to the CEO. The guy picked up the phone and he, he told him, hey, I have this new product line. This is what I think we need to do. And the CEO said, no problem. We'll be there in, in four weeks. And they scheduled this, this meeting at the plant and uh, – you know, very next day the guy shows up to work and his boss is like, what in the world did you do? Do you, do you understand how many people you jumped over? Uh, you know, that was not a right move for you. You shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have rocked the boat. Um, and he's like, you're on your own, right? He's like, you figure it out. You've got this this uh, presentation. So he went home and he was like, man, I shouldn't have done that. And his wife's like, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll help you put the presentation together. So they went to the library uh, together, 
got all these books thought books out uh, and 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 create, created these uh, the presentation on those laser printer you know what they used to have in the in the eighties with the overhead projectors and put this presentation together uh, and. He tells the story; it's just incredible. So he, the the night before the presentation, he goes to the store and buys the very first tie that he ever purchased in his life, and shows up to the meeting and gives the pitch. And uh, somebody at so, so the you know, head of the marketing group raised his hand, and said, "Well, how much market share do you think that we'll be able to?" To grab if we roll out your product line, and of course, you know, being an educator, you know, not knowing that much about the business at the time, he he said he he said he felt like he wanted to run out of the room, and he and he racked his brain. He thought he's like, what does market share mean? And he's like, he's like, oh yeah, he's like, it's the space on the shelf. That that must be what market share means. And so he looked directly at the. The, market, the head of marketing and put his hands out like he was, you know, giving him a link and he goes, this much market share, right? And then everyone just kind of fell silent. Obviously, obviously not the right response. And the C- CEO said, well, you heard the man. We're going to get this much market share if we roll this product line out. And everybody laughed and, and it kind of eased attention. But you know, obviously, it went on to be the second or third best-selling product line in the history of the company. It's what we what we call flaming hot Cheetos nowadays, and it turned the company completely around, and and it sold billions and billions of dollars worth of products. So, you know, I, the, the reason I tell that story is because I think it's important to remember that you never know where your next innovation is going to come from. It could be the janitor that's sitting in the back of the room. You just never know. Who's going to save save your company? And I, I think that that's an important important thing to remember during this difficult time. Want to add one thing to that as well uh, before we kind of do a summary about the force majeure and uh, give you some opportunity to plug your business. But um, you don't do you know the story of Wrigley gum? I don't. So this is really important, especially right now in the world of oil and gas, because sometimes in the world of oil and gas, it might take a year for you to get a sale, whether it be political reasons or it might be the fact that there's only a handful of people out there that need your half million dollar generator. So sometimes it does take six months, eight months, 12 months to get a sale. So a lot of people right now are experiencing kind of that that issue where people aren't available, et cetera. During, I want to say, World War One, there was a pullback on gum, and everybody pulled back on the manufacturing of gum, whatever the geopolitical or economic political reasons were, they had to stop making gum. Well, Wrigley didn't really have to because theirs was through baking soda. So you got like a free stick of gum with baking soda or something like that back in the day. And because they were really the only ones that stayed out there with the actual product now i don't even think they manufactured gum but because they kept the product out there of their baking soda when gum was allowed to come back on the market again they ended up with an 80 or 90 percent market share because they continued to advertise if you will they continued to stay out there if you will and the reason i bring it up is because whether it's through social media or you, you buy ads in the newspaper whatever it is 
they stayed out there when everybody else contracted. And that allowed them an in right away, right out of the get-go. So I, I do think that's important right now, too, that to piggyback off what you're saying, that right now is probably a great opportunity to get to know your employees, especially if you think maybe one of them could be your next flaming hot Cheeto guy, you know, that they could come up with the next innovation. And secondly, it is important to stay out there so people do know that you are still in business because there are a lot of people whose doors are shutting down right now. And to transition to what we were originally talking about is the force majeure. And it is happening in the restaurant industry, Chris. We're aware of that. I think the Texas Cheesecake Factory is the one that's kind of the popular one. Uh, the NBA had talked about it. But the governor of Oklahoma actually came out and wrote a letter to President Trump uh, asking for a declaration, if you will. And you said it was nationally. Now, you understood that letter a lot better than I did. So let's just kind of summarize that letter, what it means to the energy industry, and if anybody has any questions about that, how they can contact you. Sure. So just, you know, just to give you the basics on the letter, the letter's just asking President Trump to uh, provide a declaration, right, a governmental declaration that uh, the COVID-19 is, in fact, a force majeure event. The reason why they're asking for that is because a lot of uh, oil and gas leases have language that that says if there's a government declaration that that would qualify as a force majeure and allow the obligations under the lease to be suspended temporarily until that event has passed. So if we get a, a declaration from President Trump, then obviously it would cover all 50 states and it would cover all of the basins and, and it would be at least a tool uh, that the operators had available to them to try and save save the industry and try to uh, preserve as many jobs as possible by suspending the, the obligations they have in their lease. Um, so if anybody has any questions, obviously you can you can reach out to me uh, directly, uh, ccottrell, C-O-T-T-R-E-L-L, at winston.com. Uh, our firm's uh, uh, website's www.winston.com. And... Uh, you know, we're, we're open for business. We're, we're thinking critically and thinking about how we can uh, uh, survive this and get through. And to your point on the Wrigley gum, you know, don't just do everything that your competitors are doing, right? you you got to be a little bit contrarian. you got to think outside the box, think a little bit differently, and, don't, and resist the urge to just lay off, right? Send an, send an email to your employees. List out... Ask them to come up with 15 ideas on how to save the company. And maybe the first four or five are the exact same uh, ideas that you had. But once you start getting to the bottom of the list, I think that you'll, you'll be surprised to find out that people have some really interesting ideas if you just give them the opportunity.